Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, you guys, this is Dr. Rob, and I am, as always, so grateful for the opportunity to share information that I get from people that come along and say, have you talked about this? Are you interested in that? And oh, my God. So my friend and colleague, why are all these people my friends? But they are. I love these people. Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck, who lives in Florida, has really made a dedicated part of her practice to focusing on betrayed partners and, in particular, the feelings that evolve out of betrayal, the anger, the rage, and the hurt. And she's very focused not just on what that means, but how to work with it, how to make sense of it, and how to work through it. So Dr. Hollenbeck, thank you so much. Let me read a little bit about her. Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck is a certified sex education therapist, an APSATS clinical partner specialist, a certified EMDR and clinical trauma professional, and, and this is the important for, part for what we're going to talk about today, she's a certified anger management specialist, which is something I've always wanted to learn about, by the way. She helps survivors of betrayal trauma process and manage anger on their healing journey. Um, by the way, her office is in Orlando. She does great intensive, and we'll talk about how to reach her in a moment. So, Dr. Hollenbeck, welcome. Glad to hear from you. Hi, Rob. So great to talk to you today. So what brings you to uh, this podcast? Because we talked about it and you said, you know, I think there is something that might be really useful that they're not hearing about anger. What do you hear not talked about? In particular, how a woman experiences and works with anger. When we're talking about betrayed partners, specifically female partners, it's such a sensitive topic for therapists to address because they're betrayed, they're angered, they're raging, they're experiencing PTSD symptoms. And so it's such a sensitive topic when they're not managing their anger, when they can become abusive in the relationship as well as the betrayer or addict however you want to refer to the person that is betraying, who's upset the partner's world completely. So there's so many aspects to them. And I think just normalizing it for them, but really talking about it, they've got to be able to manage their anger. I always use a scripture verse that says, be angry and sin not. It's kind of that basic teaching of, hey, it's normal to be angry, but you can't hurt yourself or somebody else when you are. So I guess this is a question that I've always had is that 
my experience of women in anger is women are supposed to cry. Women are supposed to get sad. Women are supposed to be depressed. Women are supposed to be wailing, but women aren't supposed to get, be filled with fury and screaming and F you and you ruin my life and I hate you. And so I would think, you know, not only is that, you know, not reflected in the culture, but that must be difficult for some women to allow themselves to express. And you talked about kind of managing anger. I I don't know what that means. Can you tell us more? Sure. I mean, when a woman finds out that the person she was trusting the most and admired is the father of her children, is the person she's chosen to spend her life with, when she finds out that he's been lying to her, deceiving her in multiple ways, putting her at risk for STDs, having relationships with other people. All of that awful stuff that people say, you ruined my life. And the other part is, how could you love me and do this at the same time? Those are the pieces that I hear. Yeah, absolutely. You're traumatized. And within that trauma, there's grief, there's shock, there's anger, there's you feel crazy, you feel things are out of control, you don't even know who you're married to, your whole world's turned upside down, you have fears. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to be angry. Oh, there's a lot of reasons to be angry. I want to add one to that because it's the one that always strikes me as the saddest is people, women blame themselves. You know, why didn't I do this? And why did, and they get angry at themselves rather than pointing out what the problem is. So there's all of these conflicting feelings. And I guess what you're saying is they don't know what to do with them, or they say there's something wrong with me. Or it seems like I would know what to do with anger. I get angry and I'm angry and I express it. What is the problem? What blocks, what creates the challenge that you're having to help? Well, what happens is not only do women blame themselves, but they start to devalue themselves in why could I marry? How could I marry a person like this? Why did I marry him? Why didn't I see it? Am I stupid? I feel so, you know, inadequate. And so you're right. There's all of those uh, aspects to shame, self-blame. And so we have to help them work through that. And that all sparks on anger and different times. You never know when it's going to hit you. You never know what when you're going to be triggered to anger that it can even lead to rage and abuse. Well, that brings up a good question because I've certainly had enough spouses of betrayal, sex, actual, that say anger. I want to kill them. <laughs> I'm going to, and I'm going to tell our kids and I'm going to tell our grandmother. I'm going to tell everyone he works with, you know, all of that. And so that I've seen the anger and I say this to spouses all the time, it's very difficult for them to hear. Sometimes the anger can become non-productive. And I think that's kind of your line, which is when is it really helping you and the situation? And when is it becoming harmful? And I guess I wanted to ask you, like, how does someone differentiate, you know, rage from I'm furious? It all, you know, it all sounds the same to me. Well, you're so right. It gets blurred right? Because there's also this righteous entitlement, which is I have the privilege to hurt you because you've hurt me, right? So I feel entitled to hurt you because you've hurt me. And what I help women understand is no matter how much you hurt him, he it's not going to make him understand how much he's hurt you. So we have to take a different approach. We have to process the anger instead of acting out on it. And one of the things that I explain that I think is so important for everybody to understand about anger is it's a physiological issue. So, so much of the time we get caught up in the emotions of it, but it's really a brain issue. But when you say physiological, I think 
and I don't even know fully what that word means sometimes. I'm not sure I do. But to me, physiological is my my tummy, my head, my chest. I mean, I think what you're talking about is some relationship between the feeling and how my body experiences. Is that what you mean? You're exactly right. It shows up in the nervous system, but more importantly, what's happening in the brain. So when you become upset, right, in any type of anger, frustration, um, rage. The grocery store. <laughs> yes, yes, okay. you're triggered. What's happening in the brain is the brain is overreacting. And when the brain overreacts, the frontal cortex, which is your logic and reasoning, it shuts down. And that's literally in the front of our head, right? It is. It's right in okay. the frontal part of our brain. And then the amygdala uh, is where we have a lot of feeling, right? It's where the pleasure principle is. It's where the emotion can get ramped up. And so what happens is when we are stimulated and the frontal cortex is not working and the, the amygdala is kicked in, we're going to say and do what seems like crazy. I mean, we've all done it, Rob. I'm sure you can think of a time where you've been so upset. And then when you calm down later, you go, oh boy, what did I say? What did I do? Why did I say that? Why didn't I say this? It's because you can't, your logic and reasoning is not functioning properly. I do want to say just one quick thing about that. It reminds me of being an addict because I feel like when my clients want to act out way back in the day when I did that, that I was doing things that almost felt automatic and I almost didn't, I wouldn't say I had enough control, but I didn't have perception of it. And then later on, a lot of say, well, I, what was I doing there? What was I thinking? It's like the same thing, like that part of their thinking brain comes back online. They're saying, how did I make those decisions? And I guess you're saying that it's very similar for someone who's in, in strong rage. It's very similar. You know, I even talk to people about being an angerholic, so to speak, right? So absolutely the addiction of you, that's where you go to and you train the brain that that's what we do when we get upset. And no matter how many times you try not to, um, you need help to be able to understand what's happening. I developed a SCIP protocol, S-C-I-P. It kind of messes with your vocabulary a little bit because it's not a K, but it's the SCIP, S-C-I-P. And what I help people do is really understand, first of all, you have to take individual responsibility for understanding when you are upset. What are your indicators that you're upset? It's different for everybody. For myself, I know I get tension in my neck. That's my first cue. Okay, you are not okay, right? Some people don't get it until they're yelling. Um, some people get flush. Some people feel it in their chest. But the first thing I teach partners is, okay, let's start paying attention to yourself. When are you starting to get upset? Then let's take responsibility for nurturing yourself. It's not a time to talk. So we want to go sit down right? So go find a place to sit down. And I help people to create places in their home, places at their office. If you're somewhere in public, you can excuse yourself to the restroom. And scream. <laughs> well, we want to be able to sit down and not scream, but actually calm down, right? That's the C. We want to calm down. And the way we know we calm the brain and nervous system is through the senses, and so we want to lean into smell and touch and taste, and we want to look at color. We want to feel that, is it cool in the room? Is it warm in the room? So what I recommend is get some little essential oils from the drugstore, some eucalyptus, put a little bit right under your nose, keep some Tic Tacs, right? Pop a Tic Tac in your mouth, but be prepared. Know yourself, have a place to go sit down, 
calm down. And that's what your senses do. Once you get yourself calm, your frontal cortex, which is where your logic and reasoning is, that frontal part of your brain starts functioning properly again. Then the next step is to identify what you're actually upset about. So once you sit down and calm down, and this only takes two minutes to do this whole process, I'm going to go sit down, go through my senses, get calm. And then I'll kill him. And then I'll kill him in a much more logical, well-thought way. I'm sorry, folks. I don't mean to make fun, but, you know, one of the ways that we therapists survive is finding Mm -hmm. humor in such difficult things. And so... Well, maybe once you're calm, you can identify where you want to bury the body. So you're right, right? But when you're upset, you can't really figure that out as well. So, um, you know, but in all seriousness, you have to identify what's going on with you. When we're hurting, we want to look outside of ourselves and really we have to sit down and we have to look to ourselves. What is going on with me? Right. And then once I can identify what am I upset about or triggered about? What is it? Then the next step and the last step is to process it. So I teach a Lego principle. If you think about the Lego, it represents two things. One, letting go because it's a Lego. And secondly, it's a building block, right? So think about what about this is out of my control. And here's what's always out of your control. What somebody else says, what somebody else does, what somebody else thinks, and the outcome of everything is out of your control. So when you can identify, okay, I can't do anything about him, right? If we're talking about uh, him being the betrayer. But what can I do? So here's where I encourage and uh, train my partners. Can I go have a conversation sharing what's going on with me? Can I ask for a need to get met? Can I ask for what I need? Can I establish a boundary, right? Whatever it is that you need to do. Maybe I need more time before I, I talk about this and I need to, you know, talk with my therapist first, or maybe I need some time to journal or go take a long walk. Like a time out. Yes. So identify what you need, then go back to the conversation, then go back to whatever it is. So that's the skip protocol. You really have to understand there's a lot more happening with you, but if you don't calm the brain down, you're not going to be able to get your needs met. Can you just go back through the acronym again? So S is C is? It's skip. The S is sit down. The C is calm down. The I is identify, and the P is process. Thank you for that. And, you know, something stuck out to me when I was listening to you that I've just never, ever, ever thought about, which is refocusing. That if I find myself so caught up, the idea of, well, I can take something out of my pocket and smell it, and then my focus is going to go there, and then I can give myself a little arm massage. And then, so what you're really saying is, Get away from that immediacy of the intensity and find not a distraction, but something that feels good that takes you in a different direction. Is that kind of what you mean? Absolutely. Because I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's your, you know, your nervous system is so impacted when you're upset. You know, people will say my stomach gets upset. Like you were saying a few minutes ago, Rob, you feel those uh, feelings in your body, but really your mind is the most important part. And you have to be able to calm down that brain so that you can function properly. It's interesting. Yesterday, I was reading an article from the Harvard Medicine Magazine. It comes out periodically. And I was looking at the fall issue. And they were talking about the correlation between uh, depression and anger. And 
they were reiterating what I teach every day. I'm, I read it again. I'm like, there's another source that, that you know, <laughs> uh, you know my book. I'm trying to teach you. I can it's, quote Harvard for my book. Yes, yes. They, but they're talking about the fact that what happens in the brain, right? That frontal cortex shuts down and that amygdala goes into overdrive. And you really have to understand that. Um, but one of the things that they were pointing out in that article was, um, about depression and how they noticed from their studies that when depression gets better, right, when the person is lifted up out of that clinical depression, their anger is much more manageable. And what we know with betrayed partners, I believe in my experience, is that there's so much depression and anxiety happening with them because they are traumatized. And hopelessness. Yes, and so it would make sense that their anger can turn into rage much quicker. But of course, they have to take responsibility. They cannot become abusive. And this is something common that I help partners with. They will become aggressive. Can you define abusive? In other words, if I say to you, you know, I just, I, I feel like I don't want to be with you anymore. You make me so furious. I wish I could take the kids away from you. You know, is that abusive or is throwing plates? I mean, how do you sort of divide that line between expressing the anger, maybe not in the kindest way and really being abusive? Because I would love to understand that. Yeah. So when you're expressing yourself, this is how I feel. There's no abuse there. Where abuse becomes evident, abuse is simply maltreatment. It's maltreatment. That's what it is when you're not being treated well. And so abuse shows up as yelling, screaming, violence with throwing things, shutting down and not talking to you for three days. You know, Mother Teresa said neglect is the worst form of abuse. When I neglect you, I don't talk to you. I make you feel like you don't even matter. Right. So that's a form of abuse. But that I have to say that is the that's what the partner of every addict experiences is neglect. And I want to say just for a moment, you know, we do this kind of impact reflection letters where, the, where partners talk about their experience. And it's so interesting to me because 90% of what they talk about is not sex or betrayal. It's that you don't listen to me. You don't talk to me. You don't tell me what's going on. I don't know you. We talk and you don't let, your, let me in. So you're right. I think in relationships, there's a period of neglect that people put up with. And then it becomes a thing. It's like years of disappointment and anger that kind of volcano out. Yes. And, you know, I'm a certified EMDR therapist and EMDR is what we call an AIP model, adaptive information processing. And so what we're taught to understand about trauma is that when you're traumatized, the brain can't take it all in. So the brain is literally going, what's happening? And so what happens is the brain takes information in these fragmented pieces and it stores it in parts of the brain. So you're exactly right, Rob. What's happening is they don't need even know all the impact. It starts unfolding. When you start to look at, you broke my wedding vows. Yes. Oh, when we went on here, you were doing this. All these things come in and they start to be processed as they're triggered, as they're coming up, as we're doing the trauma work. I, I really, by the way, love the fact that there's a relationship between making peace with yourself and making peace with what's outside of you. But I, I, I have a couple of very simple questions that I run into with spouses when I'm working for them. And one of them working with them, I kind of work for them when I'm trying to heal their addict partners. But um, some partners will say to me, well, I'm not ready to forgive. 
And it's sort of like they think, well, if I have to put my anger down, then it's like forgiving them. Because if I'm angry at them, then I can feel and, you know, but if I'm not angry, then what about all these feelings and all what you've done to me? So I don't know about you, but I sort of see that if I put this down, then it's going to be that, this kind of connection, which I can understand. You want, you don't want to let go of your anger. Maybe you're not ready, but you're also nowhere near forgiveness. Can you help understand, like, how do you let someone feel one way and not feel like they're going to end up feeling the other? Yeah. Absolutely. I think as therapists, you know, one of our main roles is to keep educating our clients. And this is one thing that I educate on all the time is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a universal practice, but it's for you. And, you know, there's an old saying that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person's going to die right? (laughs) You're hurting yourself by holding on to it. But also we have to remind them, Rob, that forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiving doesn't mean that what you did to me is okay. Forgiving means I'm choosing not to let what you did to hurt me continue to hurt me today. It's empowering the partners to say part of forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past can be different. This is part of where they get stuck too, right? I don't want to be, I don't want this to be my life. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want this to have happened. I don't want to have this for my children. I, you know, I don't want this. And part of forgiveness is really making peace with the fact that it has happened. It's part of your story and forgiveness is healing for you. One of the things I just wanted to point out since we're talking about that is, you know, how we talk about grief being a set of stages. Well, forgiveness is too. Forgiveness just doesn't happen or not happen. There are a whole series of things that we go through, and then sometimes they go back and forth. So, by the way, there are, I just want to recommend there are a lot of really good books on forgiveness, and I think that is a wonderful topic because people kind of, excuse me for distracting, but it's kind of like, I have to forgive or not forgive. Well, not really. You could be in this stage of forgiveness and not ready for that one. So I think part of what you're talking about in this whole thing is black and white. I'm angry or I'm not. I've forgiven, but I'm not. I'm, I'm in grief or I'm not. And I think what you're saying is there's so many ways to pull that apart and see where you are in the process. With, and that makes it easier to not have to blame yourself for being here or not blame yourself for being there. And you do that, right? You help break it down. You're exactly right. And that's why we have to, again, educate our clients. This is a process. It's a process. And you can feel, as you know, Rob, they can feel one day, one day, like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. One way, one day, and then completely different the next day. Or the next hour. Yes. You can feel that minute by minute. You can feel that hour by hour. You're not bipolar. You're normal, right? Your emotions can be all over the place. And that is normal. You're nervous system, your brain, your psyche, your person, all have been violated. You need time to process that. I was uh, helping a client who is, um, he's a military professional, and um, he was explaining to me, uh, we did some EMDR uh, treatment. He was a betrayed partner. And what he was explaining to me after we were done, he said, you know, years ago, we used to get on a boat and we had this long boat ride to go over where we had to get on the front lines. And then when we were done, we had this long boat ride home. And he said, today, our men and women go, they can be over there tomorrow on the front lines. And when they're done, they can be back with their families very quickly, right? And he said, EMDR is like the boat ride. 
It's time to process emotions and thoughts and what's happened to me and what have I experienced? And, you know, so I use that example with my partners as well to say, look, this is going to take some time. You're going to have to process what are you feeling? How have you been impacted? You have a lot of great reasons to be angry, a lot of valid reasons to be angry. But again, it's not fair. It's not right when we are victimized, hurt, betrayed, deceived by somebody else in some way. It's not fair and it's not right, but we have to do the healing ourselves. And so we do have to take that individual responsibility for taking care of us, nurturing us. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. Okay, so I'm going to do a little role play moment with you just to be a partner. I'm going to say, but it's their fault. It is their fault. Why do I have to do anything? Why do I have to work? Why am I now I've been dragged into all this? I was perfectly fine before. And now my life's been ruined. And it's almost like I like the anger. It it feeds on it makes it reminds me that how upset I am, how upsetting this was, it keeps me empowered. And I know, you know, I don't think a lot of people quite understand this, but anger is a defense. You know, we look at at it as a way to keep yourself from feeling what's underneath that, which is often sadness and fear and, you know, extreme disappointment because that's really hard to hold on to. But when you're angry, you can feel empowered and like you have control. So it's, it's kind of a, and I guess I want to ask you, are they having to let go of something that feels strong to them that feels like it's holding them together? I mean, how do you, how do you help them make sense out of that? Cause my anger, I, you know, they deserve it and I feel good about it. Well, you're so right, Robin. I hear that. I mean, it's so common, right? Probably all partners experience those feelings and ideas at certain points. And what we have to do is validate. Absolutely. And no, you don't have to let go of the anger. You have to process it. And just once more for those folks, because not everyone's been in therapy, process it. What does process it mean? So processing says, what about this is out of my control? And that's what I have to let go of. And what letting go means, let me explain what letting go means, because I think this can be confusing to people. So from my perspective, letting go means I choose not to give it any more time and attention. I'm not going to keep talking about it, thinking about it, giving it time and attention. I choose. So I empower partners to say, I'm letting that aspect go because I truly believe that most of our issues come from dwelling on something we can't do anything about. So when you learn to be empowered to say, you know what, I'm choosing to not give that any more time and attention. Now, let me shift my focus to what I can do. Maybe I can establish a boundary, get my need met, ask for what I want and choose healing. And so that's what we want to do. We want to keep empowering. And if you're not in therapy and experiencing betrayal, 
maybe meet with your pastor, maybe meet with a coach, right? But talk to some safe person. You have to be processing this. And Rob, you provide so many free resources to partners. So people that maybe can't get into therapy for financial reasons, they can go to your website. I mean, I send partners to your website all the time. You've got those great drop-in groups. You've got great uh, videos on there. Tammy does such a good job of educating. So there are resources out there for the partners if they can't get into therapy. But I do recommend invest in therapy when you've been betrayed because I do think it's essential to your healing. But what you said, I you know, I value and it is really, uh, uh, I guess, an ethic that I believe in, which is we are very fortunate and so many people never get to therapy. They don't have time. They don't have insurance. They don't believe in it. And they don't even see that it would help. And the idea that it, therapy is not just about some tell me about your childhood thing. But it can also be, let me talk about my pain, and I just need you to hear me and understand me and love me. And that may not fix it, but there's something about being grounded, I think, when you talk to someone. It doesn't fix the problem, but like you said, you go to a support group, and I've had women say, I don't want to talk to those people, I don't want to show my face. I'm like, that's fine, just listen. Just hear what they have to say and where they're coming from. And what I would say to support you is every moment of connection is better than a moment alone. Because alone, I can obsess and I can get, I can make myself, you know, but when I talk to someone else, they're going to soothe me just by the connection. And I did want to say also, also, but it's so funny when I think about anger, I think about it when I was a kid and I'd get a bruise and, you know, on my arm and I would touch it. Like, how much does it hurt today? How much, you know, they're like, why are you touching yourself? That hurts right there. Well, how much does it hurt? And, you know, there's this whole kind of reaching into the anger to force something. And I'm not even sure I understand that, but I feel like you're kind of talking about it. You're so right. I mean, it's confusing. It's confusing. There's so many different aspects of healing when you're traumatized, when you're betrayed, when you're deceived. And so the pain can be different at different times. It can be related to different things. You can lean into the pain because at least you're feeling something. And so I always say, feel it, feel the pain, feel the anger. But again, let's sit down and nurture you. Let's say, what am I feeling pain about? What do I do with this pain? And also, you're so right, Rob. I think ways that I train people to heal as well is ask for help. Make that phone call and talk to somebody that you trust. Join a group and just listen. There's so many ways to connect, but you have to take that step to do it. You can't do it all on your own. So I'm empowering you to nurture yourself first, but also part of self-nurturing is asking for help, is sharing your story with somebody. Well, I think part of that um, that makes it difficult is the humiliation and the embarrassment. And what I hear from a lot of women is, I gone to that group, but they're not like me. Their problems are much worse than mine, which, by the way, addicts will say, oh, I went to a meeting and that person. And it's a way of kind of, I think, staving off grief. Because if I had to join them and really be where they are, then I'd have to look at, yeah, I am that part of that. Yes. And I hear it every day. And, you know, my approach about this is... Nobody wants us to be their story. Whether you're the addict or you're the betrayed, nobody wants us to be your story. So what I encourage them to do is is Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly. I love when she emphasizes, you have to own your story, right? Nobody wants parts of their life story to be parts of their story, right? Not me, for sure. (laughs) Right. You can't heal and go forward if you run away from your story. 
So regardless of what other people's stories are, don't compare yourself to everybody else. What's your story? What happened to you? What's going on right now? And so I believe that as we own our own story, humiliation and shame is part of work. what you have to work through to own it. But owning your own story is where healing begins. It's where you get empowered for freedom to go forward. And then it gets a little smaller. It becomes part of your story instead of all of your story. When you're first experiencing it, it feels like your entire world has just been disrupted, is over. You know, like you said earlier, Rob, you've ruined my life, right? We go to that place, but truly your life isn't ruined, but you've been hurt. And we've got to go through that healing process. So I always use the analogy of woundedness when I'm talking about healing. If we have this physical wound on our hand, open, bleeding, painful, it's going to interfere with our ability to do our best life every day. But when we stop, we give it attention. We put medicine on it. We give it a Band-Aid. We don't use it as much. We let it heal. Pretty soon it heals into a scar. And when we have a scar, we've quite frankly, we forget we have it most of the time. It's not painful. It doesn't interfere with our ability to live our life. But every once in a while, we're going to look at that scar and we're going to be a little sad because we remember how we got it. I think it's the same thing for inner healing as it is for physical healing. It's the same process uh, that you have to go through. I love your wisdom. And I have to really, really, because this is hard one stuff. And I'm sure you like me, all of us to do this work well have been through our own experiences of wanting to kill people and uh, not doing that because we wouldn't be here. But I have a couple of quick questions for you, mm-hmm. which is you, you talked about reaching out to other people and getting support. And you know how essential that is. We both really believe the connection is the healing is in the connection. But I've had spouses who went to someone who said, yeah, you should leave him and you're, you're right. And he did. So they they kind of escalate the anger. And so, yeah, you, you know, if that had happened to me, I would, of course, that didn't happen to them. And maybe they wouldn't do what they're saying. But since it didn't, they can tell that person. But anyway, I worry about people going to people who are going to escalate the anger and mirror the anger and encourage the anger. How do you tell people about sort of who to choose that's safe in that way? Well, you know, that's so common and there's many reasons for that. Sometimes you're telling your sister and she loves you so much, she doesn't want you to continue to be hurt. Sometimes you're telling a best friend and a best friend is like, kick him to the curve, girl. You know, they do it out of love a lot of times, but probably every partner, I would say most partners that I see, they say to me, you know what? I was the woman that judged other people because they stayed. I always said I would never stay if my husband betrayed me. And what I help normalize for them is this. It's a complex issue. So most people feel that way. If that ever happened to me, I'd be out. But then when it happens, you realize there's so many other aspects that impact the reason to stay or leave. So as a professional, what I try to do with people when they're traumatized is I say, unless you're ready to go out the door, like if you're ready to leave, then I support you and we walk that path and I give you resources for that. But if you're not sure or, you know, where you're at, then I say, let's take a year, let's take a year and let's heal and let's not have to have that hanging over your head to leave right? But what I do is I equip them to leave. I want them to meet with an attorney. I want them to know the law in their state. I'm in Florida. So I want them to be educated and have the plan B. So they're empowered and then set it aside and let's start healing. In my work, we call that safe harbor, 
which is maybe you're going to divorce, maybe you're going to do whatever, but, and put that, leave that on the table, but for six months from now, so you can work and they can work and maybe you work together. And then you can make that decision. You know, I, and I've said to a lot of spouses, if you make that decision out of anger, you're going to look back and say, was that really what I wanted to do? And if you got into a peaceful place, then that separation between your reactivity brain and your thinking brain begin to come back together and you can make those decisions. I, I have some short ones for you. I have a question about what I call thoughtful anger, which is I'm not furious. My heart isn't pounding. I'm perfectly calm, but I'm going to take every penny that he has and I'm going to make sure that he can never work again. And I think I'm going to take the kids away too. And I'm fine. And so what I call that is thoughtful anger because it isn't raging. It doesn't look like raging, but it's more like I am using my prefrontal lobe, my thinking brain, but I'm still thinking about how I'm going to ruin their life. So could you touch on that? You're smiling, by the way, I can see doctor. That makes sense to you. What, what is that? Well, you know, it's a form of righteous entitlement thinking, right? Is because you've hurt me, now you deserve to lose everything. Because you've hurt me, I'm going to destroy you. You've destroyed me, I'm going to destroy you. You've, you know, so those are normal thoughts. And what what I do, so I have partners every day that say, Crystal, I'm afraid of me because I'm having all these deep, dark thoughts. Like I'm dreaming about getting up in the middle of the night and stabbing him to death. You know, right. I want him to pay. And so what I say is I normalize that for them. And I say, it's normal to think those thoughts. It's very normal. You're never going to act out because you're not going to go outside your character. That's not who you are. You're not somebody that harms somebody else, but you're so hurt. It's so painful. It's very normal to have those intrusive thoughts. So I use cognitive behavioral therapy, um, shortened for CBT, but I use that to teach people how to manage intrusive thoughts. We can't control those thoughts that come into our mind, but we can control what we do with them. So look up CBT therapy. There's a lot of good worksheets and information out there for free online to manage intrusive thoughts. But that's what you're talking about, Rob, is that negative intrusive thoughts, and it stems from the righteous entitlement. So a couple of things before we stop. First of all, I want you to come back because you've talked a lot about EMDR and forever I've wanted to do a show on EMDR and have people understand what seems like crazy thinking because I know it seemed crazy to me when I first heard it, but the research is so compelling. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, will you come back and talk about EMDR? Because I think you can talk in a way that people can understand. But in like one sentence, two, what is EMDR and what is the purpose? Just real, real quick, because we'll do a whole thing about it. People are always asking me. So EMDR is bilateral brain stimulation. And basically what it's doing is it is allowing your thoughts and emotions to process your experiences and information in your brain. So it's almost like learning how to soothe yourself or soothing yourself. What I've heard is it turned down, turns down the reactivity. Mm-hmm. Like I still know what happens and I still can think about it, but I don't have this immediate rush of of, of, of the amygdala saying, kill them, you know, I can more observe it. And I, I think that's what it's about. I don't understand the process or so you're going to tell us all about that, but is that what it's about? Yeah. You're talking about, I think desensitization is what we call it. So we desensitize you 
to the negative, and then we install positive cognitions and emotions. And so it's really, again, I love the word processing because that's really what's taking place there. We're going to desensitize the negative. If you're going to feel your emotions and your thoughts and what's happening in your body and process it, it's just a quicker way to process. You know, like I told you earlier about my client that said it's the boat ride. Yeah. And I I, I just want to say, it's the same, and I hate to, to say this because I know people have feelings about it, but it's the same thing for the addicts. When I think about acting out and acting out as that island, and instead of saying, I'm just going to run across that bridge and go to it, our work is more like, could you see the island? Could you think about whether you want to go? Could you test the water? Could you, so that by the time you do all that, maybe you don't want to race all there. So it's kind of the same thing for addicts is separating the thinking brain from the feeling brain and which is what and beginning to be able to use them in harmony. Well, you're exactly right. And, and I think the addict, not only do I use EMDR for their own trauma healing, the addict's usually traumatized as well. And so we use it to, I use it to treat the addict as well as urges for addiction. So we can do future templates and we can go back and go over times that they have acted out and again, desensitize them to it and install positive choices, positive thoughts. So it's very uh, effective for both the addict and the partner. Well, we're going to invite Dr. Holland back back to talk about EMDR and trauma work, because I think that, you know, that's really a subject that we know a lot more about than we used to. And I, and we have ways to work with it that we never did before. I think back in the day, we'd give someone a pill, you know, now we can really teach people in very simple ways, how to work through and find peace with things that have happened. Even these things that we're talking about, you've mentioned women who are married to men, and married couples. And I guess, you know, I have gay clients, I have lesbian clients, I have men who've been betrayed by men, I have women who've been betrayed by women. You know, do you see, is it different for these populations? I don't think it's different at all. I use the traditional male addict and female betrayed partner, but it is absolutely conducive to all couples, whether you're in a committed relationship, whether you're married, not married, whether you're gay, you know, whatever the lifestyle is that you're in, there's so many different, it's betrayal and it's addiction and whoever it's impacting, it's the same. But oftentimes I always try to clarify for people, I'm using this example, but it could go across the board. It's the same. If you've been betrayed, it doesn't matter what your sexual orientation is. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. When you've been betrayed and your world's been turned upside down, those things really aren't as significant. But of course, we get to know the individual and what's important about them. There is a difference in who we are and, and that sort of thing. And gender. But yes, gender matters. And, and so does. So the same thing for the addict, right? We are here as professionals. We're trained and educated. And we're here to help you as the individual and you as the individual couple. So absolutely. But trauma is trauma. Betrayal is betrayal. Addiction is addiction. And it impacts, you know, there's unfortunately, there's nobody that can escape it. You know, I just want to say to everybody that you've heard me say before, I think that not every therapist on the planet is so good at what they do or particularly well-trained. But Dr. Hollenbeck, I would send you every client that I have if they lived in Florida. If you can hear, this is the voice of someone who's trained, who has found peace within herself and is motivated to help others. And you know that's what it's all about. Tell us, Dr. Hollenbeck, because we do have to stop. How do people find you? Um, I understand you're working on a book on anger, which, you know, how perfect is that, which will be coming out probably next year. 
So tell us, how can they find you? And you do groups too. So just tell us a little bit about that. Yes, you can go to my website is probably the easiest way. And it's just my name, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-H-O-L-L-E-N-B-E-C-K. And is that dot com? Yes, crystalhollenbeck.com. And what will they find? You'll find all of my services. You'll find a complete bio about me. I try to be as transparent as possible. Um, You'll see my certifications, where my trainings are. I want you to make a good informed decision when you're choosing a therapist. Um, I do stay within my specialties, but I've got lots of good pages on there, articles, information for you. Um, And also my phone number, which is 407-408-6521. You can text me or call me or email me. My email is my name again, crystal at crystalhollenbeck.com. Very simple. But yes, I'm here to help you. And if I can't help you, then I will do my best to refer you to somebody who can. And by the way, the reason I say this, folks, um, is because like us, like me, Dr. Hollenbeck believes in helping as many people as she can. And if you write her a two-sentence note that says, I'm in India and I don't know how to deal with this, and she will take a few minutes to write you back. She's not going to pass it on. So Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck, I am so blessed and grateful to know you and work with you. And we're going to have to do a lot more of this together in the days to come. Yes, Rob, always so good to talk to you. I just, I've always admired you from way back when I took my first CSAT training. Your dedication and the time and effort you put into our community, not only helping clients, but you help all of us. Um, You provide resources on a regular basis. You stay connected to us. You're always there for us. And, um, you know, I've admired you for many years and I really appreciate you. Thank you. It's been so nice to talk with you today. Thank you. I appreciate your kindness and much love to you. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon and talk to you folks in the next next episode of Sex, Love, and Addiction. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.